Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. When the farmer comes to town with his wagon broken down, the farmer is the man that feeds them all. If you only look and see, well, I think you will agree. The farmer is the man that feeds them all. It was a chilly February morning. The sun was just far enough over the horizon to make the whole ground shine from the snow of the previous storm and the fresh layer of frost. By then, we had a handful of calves that had survived the Iowa winter. Calving them was easy with my dad's assistance, but this morning was different. No one was home to help me if a calf decided to come out of the warm oven. Sure enough, the timer had run out on one calf, and it was coming into the new world. My heart started to beat a million miles a minute because I'm going to have to help deliver this calf for the first time by myself. At that time, I was a sophomore in high school, and I don't know very many sophomores that calve out cows in the bone-chilling winter. After trying to get the cow in the chute in the pen, I started to get frustrated and mad, which didn't make the situation any better. Then the cow knows you're mad. Finally, I got her in the pen, locked up, and let her push for a little bit, but not much was happening. I called my dad 14 times. Do I need to get in there and help her out right now? What do I do? He replied, yeah, get in there and help, but remember to pull down a 45-degree angle. Adrenaline starts to kick in, like before the first kickoff in a football game. I grabbed the straps from the wall and tried to get them on the little hooves that were part way out. They were black cloth straps. They had a thin layer of frost that melted right away after I picked them up with my semi-warm hands. They weren't the usual straps cattlemen use. Usually guys use change, which would be freezing on my bare hands on this cold morning. I wasn't able to get the straps on the calf's hooves because the cow kept moving around, wondering what I was doing behind her. I had to try and get her on the chute by myself to keep her calm and steady to get this calf out. In the back of my head, all I was thinking about was this timer counting down. Granted, cows have a decent amount of time before you really have to worry, but 16-year-old me was anxious. Somehow I managed to get her in the head gate and grab my straps again to help this old girl out. Then I realized I had to get this calf out because this cow was depending on me. I got the straps on and started to pull. Then during all this chaos, I remember that my dad had said, pull down at a 45 degree angle. So that's exactly what I did. As I started to pull with all my strength, the cow figured out I was there to help her. So we started to work together. I pulled and she pushed. First thing I saw were the calf's whole legs and a tongue sticking out of the mouth. Then the head, shoulders, body, hip, and the back legs. At this point, I had this slippery, slimy, very warm calf in my arms that I needed to get in front of the cow. I picked him up, 
took him to the front of the head gate, and the cow did her duty. She started licking the calf and warming him up, and my exact words were, Welcome to the world, big fella. It gets warmer. I let the cow out of the chute and carried the wet calf to the pen, locking them both in to start that bond between offspring and the mother. Right there in that moment, I knew I wanted to do this the rest of my life because being able to raise a cow and watch her raise a calf is one of the most amazing things. I have never felt more proud. I was just 16, by myself, and pulled my first calf. Farming is in my blood and always will be. In that moment, I decided what I truly loved and what I wanted to do with my life. It's Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, and I'm your host, Mary Swander. Today, we're talking to two beginning farmers, Colton Anderson and Hannah Breckbill. One a man, the other a woman. Both have decided what they truly love and want to do with their lives. One beginning farmer is graduating from college and returning to a 4,000-acre family farm. The other beginning farmer works 25 acres that she obtained by forming a land co-op. Land acquisition is a huge problem for beginning farmers. Over the years, farms have gotten bigger, more consolidated, driving out the smaller, more affordable pieces of land. And land is gobbled up by urban sprawl and investors. Colton Anderson is a graduating senior at Central College in Pella, Iowa. He is a business major and plans to return to his family farm in Boone County, where he will be going into business with his father and grandfather, establishing three generations on the farm. Colton hopes to have a cow-calf operation. He got a good start at that, as you just heard, when he was 16 years old. In May, Colton will be heading home, and he will have to deal with his family configuration. Farm families can be complex, with all the offspring fighting over the farm on one extreme, or on the other extreme, none of the siblings may ever want to ever go home again. Each generation of a farm family is forced to sort out its transition plan. Families can blow up over the issue of farmland transition. Sometimes functional families work out their plan easily. Other times it takes a mediation to satisfy all parties. Sometimes the on-farm working sibling may get the land and the other siblings are compensated through life insurance. In the Amish communities, usually the youngest gets the farm, but then this sibling is responsible for the parent's elder care. My brother, um, he's four years younger than me, so he will just be graduating high school uh, this May, attending Iowa State University, go Cyclones. And he, he's, not, he's not quite sure yet. He doesn't know if he wants to farm. Uh, he, he's never always been involved in it as I was growing up. I think he said, you know, someday, yes, he will eventually come back. I don't see that quite happening right after college, like myself. But, I mean, if you knew Chase, he, he's an open book, so you just, you just never know. And my younger sister, uh, she'll be eight years younger than me. Uh, she has no interest coming back to farm, uh, not at all. So, yeah, I don't really, we kind of, you know, I've thought about that myself, but um, I'm not totally sure how it's going to work out. When Colton goes home, he will use his management skills to further the success of his farm. Well, I major in business management, and so even like, 
going through college and coming back to the farm, you know, I've kind of taken on some different management roles that my dad has given me um, on certain work jobs. You know, when he's not present or he's not there, he has something going on. Um, he kind of relies on me to be that management role that he takes place in. You know, I don't really know if I'm bringing back anything new, but I think, you know, having such myself a younger generation coming back to the farm, you know, that's evolved to all this new changes in society, I think will help in the long run, um, especially my grandpa still farming. Um, he's 83. So, you know, he, all those old timers, you know, they're stuck in their old ways. So it takes a little extra, a little extra pushing to try and convince them to do, do a different way. Colton is well aware of the gift his family has created for him. In Boone County, Iowa, at this time, land sells for anywhere from twelve to $15,000 an acre. And with 4,000 acres, well, you can do the math. It would be hard for any young farmer to come up with that kind of cash. Actually, I mean, I don't really think anybody could do it. Um, you know, and I think about that quite often. Um, for how lucky I am to be, a, you know, be a part of a family that has been doing this for, you know, now six generations. You know, especially with everything, you know, all the inflation happening too now. I mean, input costs for farmers is just skyrocketed. It's just, it's outrageous. Like our nitrogen source to grow corn, um, so anhydrous ammonia. Last year um, in the spring when you could start signing contracts to get it for the fall, um, I think it cost probably around... Oh, I want to say seven to nine hundred dollars a ton. But now, like if you didn't get all all your fertilizer put on and you want to do some in the spring, it costs you two thousand to twenty five hundred dollars per ton. Colton acknowledges that the war in Ukraine, inflation, the supply chain problems that came with the pandemic all have had an effect on diesel prices, dry fertilizer, and other inputs. He also acknowledges the bond he has to his father and to farming itself. Me and my dad have always been really close growing up. Uh, I've always wanted to be on his hip whenever he wanted to go out and farm. You know, if it wasn't up to me or I probably wouldn't go to school, that's how much I wanted to do it. But then, you know, when I was younger too, I, I spent a lot of time with my grandpa and that's something I cherish very much. Yeah, so we us three, we have a very, you know, we have a very tight bond. Um, we're very close to each other. Um, you know, some days when we get a little angry at each other, some days we don't think so. But uh, at the end of the day, um, yeah, we're very close. Um, and I think that's that's very important, especially in today's world and just farming in general. Because, I mean, if you can't get along, you know, with the people you farm with or even work with, you know, you're not going to be as successful as what you wish. And it's that bond, that cohesiveness that runs through generations, that is at the heart of the success of a family farm. Thank you, Colton Anderson. who feeds us all is also a woman. Now I have Hannah Breckbill in the studio. 
and she's going to tell us about her very interesting venture into farming. Unlike Colton, Hannah didn't grow up on a farm, but came to it through an evolutionary process. I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I was, my parents were academics, and I grew up in a kind of in-the-city academic household. <laughs> and then I went to um, college in, in Northfield, Minnesota, and I majored in math. And about halfway through my college career, I started getting sick of the abstraction of academia and math in particular, and wanted to do something tangible and real that was good for people around me, um, that, that made the world better. So I explored a bunch of different realms of activism and finally landed on farming because it felt so tangible, so real, and it wasn't abstract in any way. It was just, it was just very present and very real, um, and it made the world better. We need farmers. So that's how I landed in, in farming. And so out of college, I got an internship on a vegetable farm, and I kind of managed the CSA on that farm. And then I worked, found Decora, Iowa. By I just moved here because of, a, of my girlfriend, actually. And then I got a job on a, a vegetable farm here um, and, and fell in love both with farming but also with the community here locally. And so that's why, that's why I kept going. Eventually, Hannah wanted to set up her own farm. It was difficult for a young person, but she managed to pull it off in a unique way. When you're a vegetable farm worker, um, you're not making a very high wage, and you're learning the skills, um, but you're not saving a lot of capital. And farming... The, it, Farming and farm ownership requires so much expense, so much capital, and so much so much wealth to hold on to, um, and to to take care of, um, and so that was that felt like a huge barrier, and I didn't know how I was going to keep farming beyond kind of what felt like a dead end of of farm workerism, <laughs> um, and so I eventually got a. Um, an opportunity to rent land and to start my own business on rented land. Um, and so I was renting a two acre paddock um, off of someone else's grass fed beef farm. And I was able to use their walk-in coolers for my produce. And I, and I even shared markets with them. They sold their beef to restaurants and I could also kind of tag my produce along, along on their trucks. So that was, um, that was my entrance into into owning a farm business and running a farm business, um, Humble Hands Harvest. And, um, but at that same time, that first year, I realized, I, I read some books and started getting in, started thinking more kind of holistically about farming and realized that I really wanted to be able to plant trees. Um, that felt like part of, part of kind of restoring and tending the land. And if I was going to plant trees, I really needed a solid place to stay for years and years and years for my lifetime um, to, so that I could see the fruits of my labor and they could, yeah, they could grow. And so I um, started realizing that I needed to access land ownership. So um, 
that felt impossible as it did before. It it just felt like, how could I possibly save up enough money and be taken seriously enough as a young woman farmer um, to um, to access farmland? But um, luckily, uh, one thing that happened was that my my back in Decora, my neighbors. And my community members back there um, uh, had this experience of a a 22-acre piece of farmland um, in their neighborhood that was about to go to auction. Um, And they were really frightened of what would happen when it went to auction because they knew that there were um, confinement animal feeding operation like operators who would probably bid on that land and might really damage the uh, quality of life in the, in that particular neighborhood. And so those neighbors of that piece of land really didn't want that auction to happen. And one of them was able to organize a group of about 20 different families in the space of three weeks. He organized 20 people to... Um, to buy, to buy the land collectively. They formed an LLC and they bought the land together. Um, and that um, was my opportunity to imagine what it could be like for me to purchase that land from those people kind of one by one. So I could buy out um, each owner um, one at a time as my finances allowed. Um, and so that first time when they bought the land, that was in 2014, I was able to buy one share of that LLC. And um, after that, it took it took a number of years of convincing the um, the the collective ownership that there could be a diversified vegetable farm here. It had just been a cornfield. Um, so uh, so I I put a lot of effort and and kind of creativity and visioning into into expressing that possibility um, to those to those people and gradually they I was able to buy pieces of land a couple of the shareholders gifted me pieces of their land and a few sold me their shares at a discount um, so I was able to access enough acres of that land, ownership of enough acres of that land that I could parcel off some, put it in my name. And then in 2017, I was able to put it in my name, dig a well, bring in electricity, do all of the development work that is required for a vegetable farm to, to be able to happen. So that's what I, that's the story in short. And <laughs> So 2017 was our first year on on this land, um, uh, which is I think of as my permanent land. And I added a co-farmer that same year so that we could um, farm, so that I wouldn't be alone in the in the management decisions of the farm. Um, I really wanted someone to kind of have equal investment with me and to be a a th- thought partner, um, and, uh, and also a physical labor partner, (laughs) um, in the business. And so, um, I'm really grateful that, that Emily is my co-farmer. I'm really grateful that she showed up in Decorah at just the right time to, to jump on the opportunity with me.
And now Hannah is encouraging other people to form land co-ops to help beginning farmers. So I would love to see more land um, cared for by communities in this in a similar way to the way that that group of people um, bought that piece of land and then was able to transition it to me. I would love to see that happen in more places. That would be so great. And that's, that's also a, a really wonderful thing that community members who aren't farming can participate in and, and like make our farm landscape better. Um, through, through, yeah, just supplying some capital for a little while <laughs> just to get a farmer started. Um, and, and then the other aspect of, of what I kind of advocate for and encourage people to do is to think about, as farmers, figuring out ways to cooperate and to, to do things, um, to farm together, even though you're not necessarily just a nuclear family couple um, but you could farm with a collective of five people and, and really um, do good business that way and, and grow good food and take care of the land really well um, and take care of each other really well. So I, I um, yeah, I encourage both, both just community members, but also farmers themselves to think out of, outside of the box and, and do something a little bit different. (laughs) Hannah brought real creativity to her farming as she has to her life. She is a musician, plays the bass in a couple of bands, plays the violin, and can be heard singing in her fields. A true agart spirit. The farmer is the man, lives on credit till the fall. It's a sin, but the farmer is the man that feeds them all. The farmer is the man that feeds them all. Yeah, the farmer is the man that feeds them all. By popular demand, I'm announcing a new contest. Get ready, folks. Open your kitchen drawers. I think that hot pads are the perfect piece of ag art's folk art. They range from the beautiful to the campy. They are often homemade and reflect the times. They are creative but utilitarian. So, do you have a barbecue mitt that you love, that has a wonderful color or shape, holds lots of memories of fun times and get-togethers? Do you have a potholder you made from loops in fifth grade that you've kept all these years? Or just a hot pad someone gave you for Christmas that was too funny, too fun, or too pretty to ever use? Well, go to the Ag Arts website, agarts.org, and send us a photo of it. Tell us where it came from and why you love your mitt or potholder. Entry fee is $10, and there are prizes galore for the Great Grilling Mitt and Potholder Contest. You don't need to have made your mitt or potholder. It just needs to be in your possession. Our judge for this contest is Susan Strawn, Ph.D., textiles historian, who has an amazing potholder collection of her own. The deadline is Tuesday, 
June 21st, Summer Solstice. The winners will be featured on our podcast and we'll have an exhibit on the Ag Arts website, www.agarts.org. Go there now to enter. And that brings today's episode to a close. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brouhaha Audio Production and had the help of Colton Anderson, our intern from Central College. We had the support of the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation and the Catlio Levine Fund, which also helps fund our farm to artist residencies. We welcome your support. Like and follow us at Facebook and Instagram. Become a premium member or go to our website at agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot O-R-G and hit that red donate button. Thanks for your help and we'll see you next time. Ha ha. Welcome to the world, big fella. It gets warmer. <laughs>